Welcome to the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast. This month, our theme will be environmental medicine. We're talking about land, air and sea based papers, including cooling techniques for heat stroke and exertional hypothermia, scuba diving and otology, and a curious paper about parachute use in the prevention of death and major trauma. My name is Yelise. I'm one of the emergency medicine trainees at Westmead. And I'm very happy to introduce Dr. Scott Squires, who is a commander in the Royal Australian Navy, an emergency physician based out of HMAS Penguin in Sydney. He's also the director of clinical services for the Maritime Operational Health Unit, which is a surgical critical care and retrieval unit. We also have Associate Professor Andrew Coggins, an emergency physician and stimulation clinician at Westmead as well. He's also a promoter of free open access medical education through Emergencypedia. So welcome to the show and we're joined with our usual suspects. This is Shreyas and I'm back for another month and excited to learn about something different today. I'm Riz and I'm one of the emergency trainees. I'm back for another month. I'm Tim. I'm one of the uh, emergency registrars as well and this is my first time on the show. So very happy to be here. I'm Kit. I'm one of the other trainees. You've met me before. Hi, I'm Scott. Thank you for the opportunity. Great to uh, be with you all. It's Andrew here. I'm really glad to be on this podcast. Really excited to be here. Hi, this is Harry. Excited to be back. In part one of our podcast this month, we have Dr. Timothy Salvarage presenting paper on first aid cooling techniques for heat stroke and exertional hypothermia by Duma et al. Thanks, Yelise. So... It's a systematic review and meta-analysis, and as you said, it's by Duma et al. So it's primarily based out of Canada, but there are contributions from New South Wales and Victoria here in Australia as well. It was published in 2020 in the Resuscitation Journal. Essentially, it's review of literature that looks at adults and children with non-exertional heat stroke or exertional heat stroke or induced exertional hypothermia. And it examines the intervention of cooling techniques or any combination of techniques that might be used in a first aid setting to measure the mortality and rate of body temperature reduction, as well as it did seek to also measure the impact on organ dysfunction, adverse effects, and hospital length of stay. Systematic review does include some RCTs, non-ICTs, few time interrupted series, before and after studies, cohort studies and case series, it searches five comprehensive medical databases and it examined studies published prior to the 10th of July 2019 from the conception of these databases. The purpose of this study was to summarize the evidence for first aid cooling in exertional heat stroke and non-exertional heat stroke. And essentially the main goal is to establish that the early recognition of heat stroke is extremely vital and the expedited reversal of this definitely improves patient outcomes. The paper hypothesizes that there are other alternative techniques for cooling besides from water immersion, which seems to be the predominantly best technique and compares, you know, multiple different other techniques like that. Essentially heat stroke is a condition categorized by severe hypothermia, which is a temperature greater than 40 degrees on a core body temperature and includes uh, organ dysfunction, primarily CNS dysfunction as well. Exertional heat stroke is essentially a temperature greater than 38.5 with physical activity and non-exertional heat stroke is um, associated with extreme heat waves without the physical exertion component. It particularly affects susceptible people, so like elderly, children and infants who lack thermoregulation and without treatment leads to cardiac arrest and death. This particular study primarily looks at US statistics and demographics. So just to look into another similar report from 2022 this year, 
from the International Journal of Disaster Risk Reduction on heatwave fatalities in Australia between 2001 and 2018. There were 473 heat-related deaths in Australia. 354 were during heatwave conditions. 244 of these were in, from inside a building, primarily a male-dominated mortality. And there's increased mortality risk with increased age, lower socioeconomic status, geographical remoteness, and physical and mental disabilities. Coming back to our study, it assesses any cooling technique or any combination of cooling techniques. The study was performed by using four independent reviewers who underwent a risk of bias assessment, which was standardized with the Cochrane ROB tool. The data analysis was dependent on which type of study was being assessed. So continuous outcomes used like inverse variance methods, which aggregated different outcomes to minimize their variation. And dichotomous outcomes were you know, evaluated as risk ratios and absolute risk reductions and used the Mantle-Hainzel method, which estimates the association between exposure and outcome. The study had a full text review of over 102 studies, and 63 of these were included. They're primarily controlled studies, which were 37, though it does include two prospective cohort studies and 24 case series. The case series themselves are pretty evenly weighted between non-exertional and exertional heat stroke. 11 of them examined non-exertional and 13 examined exertional. The predominant technique for managing exertional hypothermia and heat stroke is cold water immersion. And the studies were aggregated to form the results, which would compare cold water immersion with other temperatures of water immersion, as well as other passive cooling techniques and other more active cooling techniques that might be used in a first aid setting. The results of the systematic review show that the cold water uh, immersion versus other temperatures of water immersion didn't really have any statistical difference between them. And that cold water immersion of both the hands and feet or of the torso was much better than passive cooling. Examining ice water temperatures and temperate water temperatures show that they were also better than passive cooling, but again, not much difference between the different temperatures. And any temperature between zero and 17 degrees was shown to have a considerable statistically significant improvement in patient outcomes. Other techniques that were evaluated were like evaporative cooling, which included like misting and fanning, which was only very marginally better than passive cooling. Things like commercial ice packs or cooling vests and jackets didn't have a statistically significant improvement over passive cooling techniques. Ice sheets, fans, hand cooling devices were not shown to be any faster at cooling than passive cooling alone as well. So these results were based on the rate of cooling based on a core body temperature, as well as what the patient outcome was. So the study set out to examine what the existing literature is and to establish whether or not there is a, a gap in knowledge, you know, should be addressed. Essentially, the study shows that there is minimal high quality direct evidence of cooling techniques and that a lot more research needs to be done on what the pre-hospital and first aid management of exertional heat stroke should be. The study establishes that cold water immersion is better than passive cooling, but again, might not be particularly practical in certain first aid and pre-hospital settings. And therefore, other techniques might be more efficient or effective and should also be evaluated further studies to essentially understand what could be a more adaptable algorithm to managing exertional heat stroke. The study did set out to identify some clinically important outcomes like hospital length of stay, organ dysfunction and adverse effects, but the evidence was not sufficient enough to examine these other outcomes as well. 
So the end result of the study showed that cold water immersion from 1 to 17 degrees was shown to be effective, but ultimately there's limited pre-hospital literature that examines first aid care in exertional heat stroke and further research needs to be done. So the study was obviously limited by the lack of research. I think that also does form one of the strengths of the study, which it helps answer the question, is there enough literature? Is there enough research to back up further research into this field? The study was also, in my opinion, limited by the amount of reviewers. So four reviewers um, over multiple studies could potentially have some small confounders, especially given that their reviewers seem to be primarily based in Canada and the US. So this study might not be necessarily be able to be applied to other countries and might not be able to examine the demographic differences between populations. The study did outline that there was the limitation of uh, lack of demographic data. And it has been established in other papers that obviously different ages, different socioeconomic status and different geographical location are big impacts on the morbidity and mortality of heat stroke. So therefore not examining those things obviously leaves a big gap, which obviously also needs to be you know, looked into a bit more with further research. One of the strengths of this study is that it is a systematic review and has a meta-analysis component as well. So the grade of evidence provided is quite high and of minimal variation and therefore can be deemed to be quite accurate and reliable data. The study does seem to just examine whether or not the evidence is there or not and doesn't necessarily establish that there is a certain percentage of patients that might benefit from certain other treatments rather than just establishing that you know, further research does need to be done. Thank you, Tim, for that really comprehensive look at this paper. First off, I'd like to just ask you regarding the implementation of the cooling techniques. I think you've hit on a really important point is that the cold water immersion techniques the most effective at reducing body temperature. The practicalities of actually implementing that pre-hospitally or even in hospital is really, really difficult. I don't see very many people of having standing tubs of water up to the chin and then having the patients immersed in that and tolerate a one degree to 17 degree sit in essentially a very, very cold ice bath, as well as you're not dealing with patients who are always the most cognitively intact as well when they're confused in that sort of heat stroke state. So I can see very many issues with immersing someone and having enough bodies around to supervise that. Do you think that's one of the key limitations as well in that paper is focusing on one technique? Yeah, that is a pretty significant limitation. I think that they did try to reduce that limitation by examining the use of cold water immersion on peripheries only. So one segment of their outcomes assessed was whether or not cold water immersion of the hands and feet only was better than passive cooling, and it was shown to be more effective. However, the study doesn't really compare the different techniques with each other. They only sort of come back to passive cooling techniques, which essentially it's comparing an intervention to lack of intervention which obviously most people would assume that an intervention would be better. Is it very effective? Is it better than a torso immersion? Is it better than fanning? We don't really know. We don't, there's not really that evidence to support whether or not it's much better than one of those other interventions. Is it sufficient? That's another good question to ask. Say, for example, you know, if 90% of patients who had cold water immersion to torso had much better outcomes, is it 
50% of patients with peripheral cold water immersion, or is it 85% of patients? Is there a big difference between the two to sort of say that the number needed to treat of these patients with peripheral cold water immersion is comparable to the patients who have torso immersion? And, you know, what's the comparison to other techniques? And in keeping with that is peripheral plus a, another technique superior to torso immersion alone. I think that's one of the limitations there. There was that it didn't exactly examine the techniques um, as combinations and indirect comparison with each other rather than just going back towards passive cooling. That's a really good point, Tim. And actually, one of my favorite things of this paper was when they showed the relative magnitudes of effect of the different types of cooling. And ostensibly, cooling in temperate water has a great effect. Cooling in cold water has a slightly less effect. Cooling in even colder water has a similar effect to the cold water. But then cooling in ice water has the best effect, which I think just goes to show the old thing about systematic reviews, which is that rubbish in, rubbish out. And unfortunately, what we seem to be you know, appreciating in this paper is essentially the lack of any sort of meaningful, consistent evidence to be able to comparatively deal with this topic. I think the other thing is sort of comparability even with the same intervention. So they touched on this briefly in the paper, you know, even immersion therapies, what type of tub do you put them in? Do you put them in a square tub? Do you put them in a round tub? Is it a full torso immersion? Is it just them sitting with their backside in the, in the tub? They had similar issues with the other types of interventions as well, whether it's the cooling devices, whether it's the fans. There's lots of proprietary technology here. My favorite name when I was an ICU SRMO at Prince Wales, they deployed the Arctic Sun, which is just an excellent brand name for intensive care unit machine. Does it work at all? I have no idea. Because of that, the papers that are going to be published about each individual device are bound to have some degrees of conflict of interest. And trying to lump those together into a sort of shared pool of evidence is going to be fraught with danger. I mean, with that in mind, I guess I'm kind of wondering if anyone has any practical experience with this. What we've said is there's limited evidence, so we don't actually appreciate that any of the papers have actually taught us anything. But I'm wondering if anyone here, such as Andrew or Scott, can tell us about their practical experience in the field. The only ever time I've ever seen or heard cooling has been with people that have come in after an overdose. So generally the way that we do cooling there is through cool fluids and then putting ice packs in, say, the axillas, and that seems to be pretty effective there. I'm just wondering if anyone here has actually treated heat stroke and what they've done. Interestingly, cold packs around the groin and the axilla, that may be a perpetuating somewhat of a myth. From what I've understood, you're better to put them on the hands and the feet and the face where there's more blood flow to sort of cool the venules and, and arterioles as they go through there. Practicality of putting a person with heat stroke, usually a young male, as per this paper, if you look through the demographics, usually it's males and they're young people, sticking a altered young male into an ice cold bath, even if, you know, intubated, somewhat easier, I suppose, practically, but uh, if they're confused and fighting you, it's going to be very challenging. And the ways that we do things may not be effective. So we think that placing ice packs in the groin is effective. It probably isn't. Uh, we think using fans and spraying them with Bunnings sprayer thing to cool them down is effective. It may, may or may not be. From this paper, what I'm taking away is that the best way to do it is to put them into an ice bath. But I'm just concerned that if I've chipped the patient, it's going to be hard to get them in an ice bath in recess. And if I haven't chipped them, persuaded them to get in the shower or into the ice bath might be somewhat challenging. We need to make sure we don't electrocute them with our telemetry. Or the iPhone charger. I agree 100% with what Andrew said. I think 
practicalities of ice bath is, is challenging to say the least. It's interesting on our bigger amphibious ships, we do have baths and um, maybe hypothermia for with immersion is uh, sort of more of an issue, but um, I've, I've ne- never used it. We've had in the, certainly in the middle at least, we've trialled, you know, like cooling vests and things, more of a, I guess, a little bit to try and prevent uh, you know, heat-related illness, but um, practicalities of them is that they don't work very well either. You know, they're cumbersome, particularly with other, you know, equipment people are wearing and also they last for a minimum period of time and uh, not terribly effective. Um, even uh, evaporative cooling with, uh, you know, with the spray bottles, et cetera, you know, has its challenges in a, you know, in a, in a, uh, a critical care setting. Um, that's probably what we mostly do. And, and I agree with Andrew about it seems to be that putting the ice in other areas rather than a traditional approach seems to be better. We probably do a combination of everything also with cold fluids it all maybe helps a bit, but uh, yeah, it, it does show that, um, you know, there's probably a lack of good research in this space. So on that note, what can you do in the field? Is it more a question of just getting them to the hospital setting as quickly as you can because because there's limited sort of interventions that you can achieve? And so just getting them away from the heat source? Yeah, that, that's pretty much it in our space. Uh, and, um, you know, trying to get their as much clothing as you can off, you know, depending on if it's in a training environment versus a you know higher threat environment where they still have to have body armor etc on because obviously that cumbersome and retains a lot of heat and so do the helmets and things you know all the stuff that uh, is worn um so you can get them out of that environment uh as soon as you can i mean the vehicles ha- you know are air conditioned you know there's a capability to have some cold fluids in those vehicles as well if you have access to that and unfortunately, you know, we, we have significant heat stroke, including deaths every year, not every year in terms of deaths, but certainly significant heat stroke. So it's, a, it's an ongoing issue, particularly in the you know, northern parts of this country. I think any topic where you have a lack of experience with it, there's a high risk that myths get perpetuated quite quickly. So the first one here is clearly heat stroke versus heat exhaustion. Heat exhaustion is something we've all experienced on a hot day. When we go for a bushwalk, we feel a bit hot, a bit bothered, a bit sick. Um, we feel thirsty. That's something that we've all experienced, but heat stroke has a massively high mortality. You know, we think of the old lady coming in from a non-air-conditioned house who's hot, but actually this can occur in any age group and it may or may not be exertional. And the patient may not exhibit the classic signs, uh, but the one thing they will have is some neurological thing. It might just be they're slurring their speech like I do at baseline and with the accent, or they may just be a little bit altered and a little bit off. So they, they, and they, may, they may have exerted themselves and they may not have, but the, I think any patient who comes in with a, any altered mental status and is a bit hot, they've got heat stroke until proven otherwise. We've got to remember it's a really high mortality. And I think assuming that sweating is part of the diagnosis is a, a big myth or a big pitfall too. I mean, a lot of patients who have run a marathon are going to be covered with sweat. And if, they're, if they walk into the, the tent that you're working in as the volunteer at the end of the marathon covered in sweat, I wouldn't be ruling out heat stroke based on the fact that they're covered in sweat. They might have stopped sweating now, but that's one thing. To, there's a couple of myths that I think are really um, out there in the community of emergency medicine because we don't see this. So we read the textbook and one textbook says you've got to be not sweating and you've got to be like a certain age to have heat stroke. In fact, you can be any age. It has a high mortality and you may or may not be sweating. I think you've hit on some really key issues there, Andrew. I'd like to know in the context of environmental changes such as climate change, more extreme weather conditions, how we should adapt our practice into 
incorporating some of those principles into our diagnosis, as well as identifying those at-risk demographics. So you're not necessarily saying age is a, is a factor, but also probably at-risk vulnerable patients with multiple comorbidities. How do you think changing weather climates would affect them? The Northern Hemisphere, you can see in this paper, they discuss in France, heat waves, massive increase in mortality. I think in a lot of locations around the world, they don't have good air conditioning and they're not adapted to that climate. Whereas in Australia, we might be slightly on the luckier side that we're used to having regular heat waves. That said, the temperature is clearly going up all over the earth. And, uh, you know, this is going to become more common. It's definitely a topical thing with climate change. And this is going to be increasingly common. We're going to have to adapt our um, living to try to prevent this. In Australia, we tend to do our marathons and our kind of big races in the winter, which makes a lot of sense. I think we tend to avoid heavy exercise races in the summer, which is obviously good. In the Northern Hemisphere, I've noticed that a lot of big marathons tend to occur in the summer. So it's a bit like flipping a coin as to what the weather might be like. The Boston Marathon, New York Marathon, all in the sort of summer, or at least in the spring. And those extreme weather events are becoming more common. So it might be a case of adapting by moving events to more appropriate times of year. And the other adaptation is obviously having better cooling in our houses. If you look at London, no one has air conditioning there. And yet three months a year, it's like a hothouse sauna in that city. Um, and they have a lot of extra deaths in the Northern Hemisphere, presumably some heat illness related deaths. Yeah, just touching back to the study that, you know, more Australian based demographics, the heat wave fatalities in Australia between 2001 and 2018, there were 473 uh, heat related deaths in that time frame, and 354 of those were in heat wave conditions. So they identified like heat waves in 2009 and 2014, the biggest heat waves during that time frame. And they actually contributed the majority of the debts as a result of that. And they actually had a strong association with lack of building heat protection. So air conditioning and people in remote areas who didn't have access to things like air conditioning or fans who were more susceptible to developing those things. So as Andrew said, you know, we tend to have our marathons and things like that during the winter. I think People who are going to exert themselves typically are a bit more prepared and a bit more aware, especially in Australia, of the risks and the consequences of heat stroke. So it's definitely our at-risk populations, people with physical, mental disabilities, people who are you know, not able to access the resources that are required to keep themselves cool in heat waves, who will be the ones to ultimately suffer. There's an increasing socioeconomic disparity between you know, different people in the you know urban settings and more regional rural settings so i guess in the context of uh, climate change we definitely might be seeing people in our rural regional areas be much more highly at risk especially as they're more likely to be more inland away from coastal areas and less likely to receive that early intervention that's actually been shown to improve patient outcomes. Tim, I think that's an excellent point. There's quite significant socioeconomic and sort of health equity issues at play here. Realistically, systems save lives a lot more than people, right? So I think that proper urban planning and proper city development and town development is going to play a much bigger role than necessarily any individual clinician in actually keeping people alive in this setting. On that note, Scott, I was just thinking about what you were saying in terms of the body armor that some of the soldiers will be wearing, particularly in high threat environments. In the face of progressively changing climate conditions, what are the defense forces doing to try and adapt, you know, to the changing environment? I guess in the space of uh, their equipment, you know, they're trying to have uh, as lighter weight, you know, equipment that still is effective, you know, including um, uh, helmets and body armor. A lot of their clothing has been good advances, I guess, you know, from the traditional quite heavy, almost canvas-like, you know, cotton 
clothing to uh, to much more lightweight, uh, you know, uh, and certainly much more breathability in in their clothing. And uh, they certainly are, are quite big on trying to, um, you know, get people to acclimatise or to adapt. So you when you go into those regions, you know, you'll have a period of sort of usually not weeks, but so um, it may it may not be long enough, but um, certainly days, uh, you know, while you're trying to get uh, used to that environment before you start going out on patrol, you know, a period of time to try and do that. So it's probably a range of responses, but certainly in the, um, you know, I guess the technology space of, of trying to have uh, the lightest but still functional equipment, all the uh, body armour systems they have, have, a facility for hydration, you know, for um, like a Camelback style uh, hydration uh, packs. Um, and certainly people are, uh, you know, indoctrinated is probably not the right word, but, you know, uh, advise and, you know, hydration and everything is, uh, uh, you know, certainly told about that and trying to avoid, you know, medications and things that may impair your thermoregulation. So it's probably a multifaceted. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Andrew, you kind of touched on, the fact that every patient who sort of comes in uh, altered and with hypothermia, you need to consider the diagnosis of heat stroke. Now, I think part of the challenging thing of this is the differential diagnosis is just so wide. How do you actually approach the differential to someone who comes in hypothermic and with an altered mental status? And we've all got that one wrong. I think we often assume it's something else. So they come in altered and we're thinking, oh, it's NMS, serotonin syndrome, hyperthyroidism, sepsis. And then very much down the bottom, we're thinking about, you know, heat stroke. So I suppose we should probably be thinking firstly about that increased awareness when the weather is such that it's likely. So I suppose in, in the summer months or particularly if we're having a heat wave, potentially notifications around the department or alerts that we should be thinking about it at the front of our mind would be important. Because if the, the patient, I'm not saying you couldn't have heat stroke in the winter, but it, this time of year in the Southern Hemisphere, it would be unlikely. Whereas over the summer months, particularly in a heat wave, I think we need to be more alert. So the first thing is to have it on your radar. It might be worth having that thought process in our conversations regularly in the summer that that should be in, in the front of our minds. When the patient actually presents though, I suppose it's just having that working diagnosis, which is this is an altered patient who's hot and I'm going to do the ABC stuff. And then once that's secured, going back to your differentials, and I think it's a good habit to get into when you're sort of 15 to 20 minutes into any resuscitation to stop and say, I think my working diagnosis is this, but what else could it be? It's not that we're not doing a good job. It's just that it's a good time to stop 15 to 20 minutes into your resus to think, okay, well, what else could this be? And I think heat stroke is one of those ones that probably would come up in that secondary stop and thought around maybe 15 to 20 minutes in. If you don't stop and think about it, potentially it might be 40 minutes to an hour before you even take a temperature centrally and realize that they've got heat stroke, in which case the neurological sequelae may be manifesting themselves. Um, if we don't treat heat stroke early and kill the patient actively, then the patient will have significant morbidity and mortality. So hopefully that answers the question. But I think for me, the caveat would be you'll miss it because you're dealing with the ABC quite appropriately and thinking about other stuff. And the way to prevent that is two things. Number one would be be on your radar at certain times of year. And number two is get into that habit when you're 15 to 20 minutes into that resource and you've kind of secured the airway, you've given some fluids and you, and you stop and you think, right, what else could this be? And that's probably when it's going to pop in your mind and you're probably ending up treating it promptly. But it, you could easily, if you don't do that, it could, you could be an hour and you may have missed. I just wanted to come back maybe to some of the kind of techniques and equipment that we can use. My experience in heat stroke 
is very limited and, and has been kind of to do with that festival population, those kind of mixed drug affected heat stroke kind of patients. I guess every patient is slightly different and every location is slightly different. We talked briefly about cooling vests before. I've seen them used with very limited success. They didn't seem to really effectively cool. And there seemed to be lots of patients that were getting burnt from them, essentially thermal burns. Is this something that anyone else has noticed? Is this just something that are kind of observed or are they still in vogue? And is there a role for things like gastric lavage? I know that some of the papers within this study touched on that but the study itself didn't seem to. Is that still something that is worth using? Kid, I'm not exactly sure about gastric lavage, but I did look into a few other sort of papers that examine other cooling techniques. I was just more looking for like the weird and wacky sort of things that people come up with. So there's like transpulmonary cooling techniques. So they just give them cold air to breathe. They ventilate them with cold air. That was shown to be not very effective at managing heat stroke compared to cold water immersion. There's also quite a few studies looking into how to portableize and modify cold water immersion techniques using other sort of things. So one study, it made a contraption to immerse somebody in a tarp and they use airflow flaps and things like that to oscillate air through as well and help sort of take the heat out by like convection. And that was shown to essentially be quite effective than, you know, conventional cold water immersion techniques. However, just like one person's sort of design that probably hasn't caught on too much or might've been very situational. So whether or not it applies to like hospital practice might not be necessarily effective, but they were shown to be like very portable and very easy to use for that reason. I guess I'm afraid of, you know, trying a few of these techniques out that maybe we don't come across very often here and yeah, end up doing more harm than good by causing thermal burns from the ice or provoking some other complication. One of the things I'm really afraid of is the MacGyver bias. It's the bias that you think that your amazing MacGyver style intervention is going to work better than whatever's traditionally described. But I'm just wondering how we're actually going to do this in resource to actually do a cold water immersion practically. There's always like getting a parachute or getting like a, a morgue bag and then filling it with ice and water above below their bum seems like an amazing idea and I'm drawn to it. But I'm also thinking to myself, oh my goodness, there's a a large bias there that I've never actually done that before, but actually doing it seems like a completely different challenge. I worry that resus would just turn into one big swimming pool. You guys probably heard there's the taco, which is essentially like the body bag with the you know, patient in the bag with the, uh, or tarp or something. And then, you know, ice slurry. And as Andrew said, I like that MacGyver analogy. It's, uh, you know, the practicalities of that, uh, it would, uh, you know, I don't think, uh, in our space, uh, you know, would be conducive to a, uh, I can imagine uh, not only for the patient, but, uh, you know, an angry numb or uh, the director or something kept walking in and thinking, what the hell is going on here? Exactly. And infection control have taken all the fans away because of COVID as well. So we're kind of left with just ice packs and cold fluid from the fridge. Transpulmonary cooling is off the table then. Aside from dousing people in water in terms of our routine critical care what are the important things uh, scott and andrew to make sure that we cover in managing you know the patient who's got severe hypothermia are there particular interventions that we routinely do that are important and and are effective once you get down to i guess 38 degrees or some some nominal temperature around about that uh, you know you probably uh, you don't need to uh, be you still need to be on uh, monitoring them, but maybe not uh, actively cooling as much. And here you know, they may need adjunctive medications like you know benzos to uh, try and uh, manage shivering, or you know assist with agitation and things. 
And and also, I guess, being aware that you, they can have two things, you know. We had a case a couple of years ago, which was a um, you know, sympathomimetic toxidrome in someone who was also, you know, not known to be hyperthyroid, but was sort of almost thyroid storm. So, you know, it'd be a bad day to have that, but um, I guess keeping an open mind. And I think Andrew's approach about the, you know, the 20 or 30 minutes in and review is great so that you know, you'll just uh, be aware of that and look at all the other alternatives or co-diagnoses. In ventilating these patients, uh, does switching to non-humidified oxygen, does that make a difference? And is, is that something that could potentially contribute to assisting with cooling? And I think you're going to have enough tools in your armament to probably fix that before you need to worry about the humidification of oxygen. And I think Scott was alluding to this before, once you get to 38 degrees, you're already on the way to sort of shivering. So you generally would stop cooling them. So they usually start at 40, 41, 42, and then gradually move down towards normal. And probably you want to stop when they get to just hot, not very hot. And so if you're thinking of those things later, in terms of ventilation, you probably won the battle and it may just be more the good critical care, your fast hug approach, so to speak, and making sure that you've executed that well and get them to the appropriate setting as quickly as you can. If you're in a rural setting, obviously you may need to retrieve them out. Andrew, you're obviously heavily involved in our ECMO setup here at Westmead. This is one of the sort of Hail Mary interventions that, that are sort of sometimes discussed in the severely unwell patient. What's the role of ECMO in this sort of category? ECMO is great for circulatory management, oxygenation, removing CO2, and obviously temperature control too. But I don't think you're going to need ECMO just for a hyperthermic patient most of the time. These sort of patients may end up on ECMO because they're a young muscular festival goer who's taken lots of drugs and on a really hot day in the summer and has been dancing for 12 hours and drunk lots of water. They may have coexisting stuff like hyponatremia, but ultimately the ECMO is not really kind of the first management for being hot. It might be a, a, a thing for their being a young person with an arrhythmia, reduced cardiac output, but it's probably not going to be the first line for being hot. Although it's a, it's a nice thing you can do when you're on ECMO, you can control obviously temperature quite readily. So I think to basically to answer the question, I think with the, with the humidification, I think it's going to be a massive issue. You probably, once you get to 38 degrees, you probably need to slow down. You're probably winning and just good critical care principles apply, including potentially paralyzing the patient for a time, heavy sedation with benzos and, and opioids. And then for the ECMO question, if the patient ends up on ECMO for other reasons, such as, you know, VT storm or cardiogenic shock from their terrible, you know, cardiac issues that they're having as a result of being hot, going to a festival, then I think it's fine. But I wouldn't be kind of trying to call the ECMO team in just for the hyperthermia. It's more of an opinion than any evidence behind what I'm saying. You guys have both alluded to this 38 degree threshold. How fast do we need to get them down to that 38 degrees? Is it throw everything at them, get them down ASAP? Or, you know, is it more like a sort of hyponatremia management where you want to do it gradually over a few hours? Yeah, trying to get them um, as quick as we can. I think most of the techniques are, or a combination of techniques are effective, but, uh, you know, things aren't going to happen in minutes. And so, uh, and given that, uh, as Andrew said, the mortality is high, that, uh, you know, and, you know, once you get down that path of multi-organ uh, dysfunction or failure, uh, you know, uh, their mortality is, is certainly very significant that uh, we want to be, um, you know, trying to expedite their cooling. been a very fascinating discussion. A lot of points to take home. Tim, would you like to highlight a couple of the key ones that you identified? We've established that the early 
and rapid management of hypothermia is shown to uh, improve patient outcomes and is invariably the goal of any technique that we employ to try and manage these patients. Obviously, there are some limitations with early recognition where you know we have confounding other differential diagnoses and often these patients do present with complex medical histories and complex backgrounds. We need to do more research into establishing clear guidelines for pre-hospital care. And we need to potentially look into combination therapies and other therapies besides from cool water immersion in the management of these patients. Thank you very much, Tim. So that brings us to the end of our first segment. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts and feedback. You can email us at westmeededjournalclub at gmail.com. Everyone stay safe and we will be back in your ears soon.